Father, you are so gracious to us. You draw us together in fellowship. You nourish us from your great bounty. And you knit us together with bonds of affection. Use this time, I pray, for the blessing of these, your daughters, that in this season of Advent, they might hear your call upon their lives with ever greater clarity. And grant us the grace, we pray, to use these and all of your many gifts for your great good. For we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So without um, further ado, I would love to welcome Susan Yates. She comes to us from Falls Church, Virginia, where her husband, John, um, that she's been married to for 50 years, which is an amazing testimony right there. Um, she, her husband is the pastor of Falls Church Anglican Church. It's a lot of churches. Um, and Susan has authored um, many books um, about faith and about raising children about marriage and really how to center all those things in, in Christ. Um, and like many of us, Susan wears many hats. Uh, she is the, fa uh, the father, the mother of five children, and she has 21 grandchildren um, and has uh, quadruplets, right? So that's, that's pretty amazing. Those, um, they all keep her very busy. But in the back, we have um, many of her books, um, one of many of which are about raising kids with values that last. Um, there's ones for um, people that are in the, the baby stage, which is wonderful. And then she also has these wonderful um, one devotional um, scripture readings that are very short and you pick, you go daily. And it's perfect for the person that's always on the go, which I think probably is just about everybody else in this room. Um, they come with these cards, and they're just great because you can just, it's very brief and centers you for the day. Um, those are available in the back as well, and I believe they're 20% off today. So um, without further um, interruption, I'd love to welcome Susan Yates. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna, and thank you all for coming. I am, I am so excited to be here. I have so many ties to this city. Uh, I've got ancestors buried in your cemetery. Um, my uncle Fitz Allison is a former bishop of this diocese, and then we started out our ministry life at Trinity Cathedral in Columbia, South Carolina, and so I have a table of dear friends from those youth ministry days that are here as well. And then other friends who've transplanted from Northern Virginia where we live down here. So it's, I feel like I'm homecoming. So thank you for being so warm and having me. And what, what a thrill to be here. What a thrill to be here. Uh, as um, <coughs> Joanna mentioned, and thank you, Joanna and Rachel and all the team that's cooked this incredible luncheon. This is beautiful and everyone who's worked so hard. Uh, Joanna mentioned we have five kids. They're all married, and we do have 21 grandchildren, which still shocks me. I think it's somebody else. <laughs> and we ran up our numbers because one of our daughters, Libby, who had a little girl who was not yet two, gave birth to quads. 
so she had five children in under seven in under five, two years, and I had five kids in under seven, including a set of twins. So <laughs> Libby has won up to me, <laughs> and <laughs> it's been great fun. I do have to sort of give a little disclaimer here. Some of you are looking at me and you're saying, "What is the deal with her hair? I mean, what are those?" things in her hair. Well, we had a family reunion over Thanksgiving, and I was doing something, wanted to do something special with two 11-year-old granddaughters, and they wanted to get beaded. You know how the ladies do the beads. And so they talked me into getting beaded, which is why I have beads, but nobody has told me how to get them out. <laughs> so I don't know how to get rid of them. And uh, one of my friends said, Susan, you cannot go to St. Philip's in Charleston. I mean, that's a really proper church. You cannot go there with beads. And I thought, well, you know, as a grandmother, you can sort of do anything you want. <laughs> that's the great thing about getting older. Well, um, I would love just to pray for our time again. And thank you so much, Jeff, for opening us in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for this chance to be together. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would come down on this room, that you would speak one word of encouragement, one word to each one of the hearts in this room, that we would know that we have heard from you today. Lord, all we really need to know is a word from you. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to worship you in this country. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so Christmas is 18 days from today. Can you believe that? Christmas Eve is 18 days. And some of you are ready. <laughs> Your tree's been up since the day after Thanksgiving. Your house is decorated. You ordered all your gifts online. Everything is wrapped, delivered, or under your tree. You feel pretty good about your accomplishments. But somehow, even now, you keep adding things to your to-do list, right? That list never ends. Others of you haven't even started. Like me, you, don't even have, you haven't even gotten your tree up. Some of you are still adding friends or neighbors to your gift list and wondering how and when you'll get them all gifts. And the cooking that's ahead, oh my. One of my young mom friends recently said to me, Susan, in all honesty, I just can't wait till it's over. And I know, as sad as that is, some of us have felt like that at different times. It's easy to feel overwhelmed. Some of you have extended family coming or are going to visit family and your relationships are tricky at best. Just thinking about these family dynamics ties your stomach up in knots. Perhaps you've lost someone this year or had a family crisis, and this season brings you a new wave of sadness. Or you may be in a season of uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty throughout our world today. In our nation's capital where we live, there's great uncertainty. <laughs> And politics is really painful at the moment. You have certain uncertainty in your church here at St. Philip's. 
You have uncertainty about the future of your diocese, about your buildings. And in your home, you probably have some uncertainty. Perhaps it's uncertainty about a health issue, a child's acceptance at college. You're still waiting and wondering. A job change or how to deal with aging parents. Life is simply uncertain. We live life mostly in transition. And what makes this hard is that we tend to think that stability should be the norm. But the reality is that stability is the rare exception. Transition is the norm. So we have to change our perspective, change our expectations, and recognize that transition is the norm and stability is the rare exception. But often the uncertainty in a transition will lead us to fear. We have the fear of a terrorist attack, the fear of an economic meltdown, a job layoff, a terminal diagnosis, the results of our child's bad choices. We fear for ourselves, for our marriages, our children, our grandchildren, our extended families. There are two emotions that I've been thinking about that I think most of us experience during this season and also throughout the year, but they really kind of come up during this Christmas season. And one is we feel overwhelmed. And the second is we feel uncertain. We have that sense of uncertainty. And both of these feelings can lead to fear. So what do we do with these fears? And how does Christ speak to these emotions? I want to share with you today two insights to experiencing his supernatural peace in a season of uncertainty. And to introduce the first insight, I want to tell you a personal story. Uh, <clears throat> a few years ago, we were on an airplane, and we were flying back from two weeks of ministry in Africa. And John and I were thoroughly exhausted. We were depleted on every level, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. We were so done. And I remember getting on that international flight, and you know, you're scrunched in way back in the economy section in the middle of those rows of four and five seats. And I remember just melting into the seat. And as I just sort of sank into the seat, so depleted, I began to think about one of my children. Now, at the time, we were empty nesters. Our kids were either in college or post-college. So I wasn't going home to toddlers. But, you know, you're always a mom, right? And I began to think about one of my adult children that I imagined might have a problem. And as I thought about this child and this potential problem, in my weakened and exhausted state, the problem began to grow and grow and grow in my head. And all those what-ifs, that's a very dangerous phrase, by the way, what-if, 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 began to overwhelm me. And I thought, well, okay, I'll just pray, and I'll feel better. But praying just really exacerbated the problem. And I thought, well, I'll read the scriptures, and that'll make me feel better. And I opened the Bible, and that really didn't help either. And finally, I just sunk into my seat, and I just cried out to the Lord that prayer he always loves to hear. And it was just simply this, help. Help me, Lord. Help me. 
And what came to my mind were two words that really were to change my life. And it wasn't audible. I didn't hear them from the Lord, but I knew immediately that this was a word of the Lord for me. And these two words were simply this, remember me. Remember me. And what I realized in that moment was that my issue, the potential worry about this child, had become bigger in my head than my God. And I had forgotten and wasn't resting in the fact of how big God was. And I think so often in the Christian life, we try to grit our, tree, grit our teeth and churn up trust. But we, we really can't do that. It's hard and it's frustrating. What we have to go to God is to God and remember who he is. So that began a real journey for me of learning to dwell on one character trait of God each day. Asking God as I get up in the morning, show me one trait that I'm going to think about today that will enable me to see how much bigger you are than my issue, whatever the issue of the moment is. And I remember one of the first times I was reading in Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 8. It says, he lavishes his love upon us. Now, isn't lavish just a great southern word? I love the picture of God lavishing his love on us. But I tend to treat God as if he's frugal. He just kind of parcels it out as necessary and as I need it. But that's not our God. Our God is the God who lavishes us. On another occasion, I remember waking up and asking God to remind me of a character trait. And the one that came to mind was he's the God who rescues. And a few minutes after this, my phone rang, and it was a girlfriend on the other end of the line who was just sobbing because she said, Susan, I'm having such a hard time with my teenage son. I feel like he just needs to be rescued. And I thought, how good you are, God, to remind me of yet another character trait. It was really off of these character traits that I spent many, have spent many years doing that I developed this book, The One Devotional, that has a hundred of them. And I can't tell you what a difference it makes in my life to begin my day walking in one of God's character traits. This morning it was, he's my shepherd, shepherd, shepherd. And thinking about the ramifications of God being our shepherd. So let me encourage you, the first insight is really that God is bigger than your issue. Whatever your issue of the moment is, God is bigger. And let me encourage you to begin a lifelong journey of discovering how big he is. We'll never get there this side of heaven. We're all women in process, and we won't get to the end. We won't accomplish it. We're women in process. But growing in Christ is spending the rest of our life discovering how big our God is. <coughs> The second insight that has helped me so much is that he is the only one who completely understands us, who completely gets you and gets me. Perhaps in the midst of this season, you have found yourself thinking, no one cares, no one knows, no one really understands. 
no one appreciates. Sometimes we blame our husband because he just doesn't get us. Our friend because she didn't respond in the way we needed her to. Our boss because he or she doesn't appreciate us and all that we have tried to do for them. Our parents or in-laws because they don't know how hard it, whatever our it is, really is. It's helpful to ask, am I looking to the wrong people in the wrong places to meet my needs? Perhaps I should be looking to Christ and asking where in his life did he experience this emotion? There's two passages in Scripture that have had a real profound impact on me, and they're both found in Hebrews, and they both say essentially the same thing. It's the last couple of verses of Hebrews 2 and the last couple of verses of Hebrews 4. And let me read to you from 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What that has enabled me to see, and again, it's the last couple of verses of Hebrews 2 and the last couple of verses of Hebrews 4, is that part of Jesus' role as being God-made man and walking on earth was to experience everything that we will, every emotion that we will, yet without sin. And in Psalm 147, it says, His understanding has no limit. So when we feel that someone just doesn't understand, we need to remember our heavenly shepherd. I understand. I understand. And to ask, where in Christ's life could he have experienced the emotion that I'm experiencing? I want to give you several examples of how you walk in this concept. Have you ever been in the agony of a difficult decision? We all have, haven't we? We just don't know how to decide. And one of my favorite verses is James 1.5 that says, If we lack wisdom, he will give it to us generously. We have a generous God. Often we get hung up, you know, okay, I want the answer right now, God. But God sometimes knows that we need to learn some other things before he reveals to us his wisdom about this particular decision. But there's agony in making a difficult decision. Sometimes we're scared. Sometimes we're lonely. And we often say, no one else knows how I feel. And yet Jesus does. Where in his life? And it doesn't take long to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. When he's in his agonizing moment, right before he is to be crucified, and he calls Peter, James, and John, come and pray with me, stand with me. And they fall asleep on him. But he cries out to the Lord, Lord, if there's be any way, might this pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. 
It was an agonizing moment in the garden of a difficult decision. He knows the pain of a difficult decision. Or have you ever been betrayed? Perhaps betrayed by a man? Perhaps betrayed by a family member? Or even a girlfriend who shared something with someone else that you had shared in confidence? Being betrayed is painful. And it's lonely. And it hurts. And so once again we go to Jesus and say, Jesus, do you know what it feels like to be betrayed? I need the comfort of your understanding. And again, as we look at his life, it doesn't take long to, of course, Judas is the most obvious. Here's Judas. He'd spent three years with Judas, and yet Judas betrayed him for a sack of coins. Here's Peter, on whom he was going to build his church, who denies he even knows him three times, one of his best buddies. It helps to think of the emotional cost of God-made man in Jesus because in him we find understanding. Or perhaps you feel like a failure in your parenting or grandparenting, and you often say, I've made a mess of these kids. All of us, really, honestly, ladies, we all feel that many times over, right? And it's really easy to feel like we have ruined our kids. How could Jesus understand that when he wasn't a father? Well, in a sense, the disciples were Jesus' sons, right? And he spent three years with these dudes. And then at the end, the mother of Zebedee, the sons of Zebedee, comes to Jesus and says, now I want one of my sons to sit at your right hand and one at your left. And then at the Last Supper that night, Luke tells us that a dispute rose amongst the disciples who was going to be the greatest. And I can just imagine Jesus thinking, I have spent three years with these guys and they are still having sibling rivalry. (laughs) I mean, how disappointing on a human level that must have been for him. I mean, often I think, you know, gosh, Jesus, if you would just show me what to do, I'd do it. But that's not really true, is it? Here was Jesus himself in the flesh spending three years with 12 men who still didn't get it and who still argued with one another. Jesus understands the feeling of failure as a parent. I like to say to my young moms, Your ability to ruin your kids is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem them. We all need to remember that. Our ability to ruin our kids is not nearly as great as God's power to redeem them. So here's another emotion. What about waiting? You know, waiting really stinks, doesn't it? It's so hard to wait, and especially in the culture in which we live, because everything is instant. Texting, tweeting, drive throughs instant, instant, instant. We are a culture in a hurry, and it's really hard to raise kids in a hurried culture in which nothing encourages waiting. 
And then we go back to the life of Jesus. Jesus, how can you understand how hard it is to wait? Wow. And then we look at his life. And we think, oh my goodness. You were born and then you lived for 33 years. But you didn't even begin your ministry, your public ministry, until you were 30. That's a really long time to wait, isn't it? I wonder how that was for him, that long period of waiting. And even I've laughed at how God must think about strategic planning. You know, some of you are strategic planners in your career. And, you know, if you were going to send your only son to die on the cross to change the world forever through forgiveness but wait 30 years to begin and then die after three, he probably wouldn't have made it as one of your star strategic planners, would he? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's always helpful to remember that God knows all of the details. And my little issue is just a tiny speck in the realm of what he's doing in the kingdom. And a helpful phrase that my mother once gave me is, Susan, remember, he is working while we're waiting. He's not dormant. He's working while we're waiting in ways that we cannot see. So those are just a few examples. In my book, Risky Faith, I, I have a whole, spend a whole chapter on this and give other examples. But the point here is when you're in a hard place, when you're feeling overwhelmed, run to the scriptures and run to the life of Jesus, to the one whose understanding has no limit. And ask yourself the question, where in your life did you experience what I'm experiencing? So let me give you one final example of this that hit me at Christmas a few years ago. So our five children got married within a short period of, a short period of time. Actually, we had four weddings in three summers. Now, that was a crazy maker, and our twins got married six weeks apart. They were the last two to get married, the girls. And I remember just with all this preparation and the wedding stuff, and then it was over, and we rejoiced, and we were thrilled with the spouses. And it was August, and we were sort of coming down, sort of cleaning up. And as I looked to the fall, I realized that it just was going to happen, so happen, that this was the Christmas that all five of my children were going to be with their in-law families. Now, I grew up in a large family. I married into a large family, and I had never been alone at Christmas. And as I contemplated this, I was so sad. And I remember a gal who didn't really know what my husband does, my husband's a rector. Well, he's just re recently retired, but of the Falls Church, Anglican. And so we've been in ministry our whole life. 
and this acquaintance said to me, oh, Susan, it'll be so nice. You and John will have time together. You can um, roast chestnuts by the fire. It'll be really cozy. It'll be romantic. <laughs> you know that's not right, Kristen, right? <laughs> if you're in ministry, Christmas is not a romantic time with your husband. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Um, usually he's in a bad mood because he doesn't like his sermon. Everybody in the congregation's lives fall apart at Christmas. Christmas can be a really downer time if you work in a church. And so I knew that wasn't going to be realistic. And we are a large church, and so I knew that my husband was going to be gone on Christmas Eve from about noon until 1 in the morning at different services. And a friend invited me, well, Susan, you can come over and spend Christmas Eve with us. And I thought, you know, that's really sweet, but... I really need to walk through this. This is a big change, and I just feel like I need to walk through this by myself. So I went to the service that I was going to go to, and then I went home, and my husband was still having other services, and I curled up on the couch, and I lit the candles, and I lit the tree, and I put on the Christmas music, and I burst into tears. I've never been alone in my entire life on Christmas Eve. And I thought, okay, God, this is a real test. In Hebrews 2 and 4, it says that you have experienced everything that I will, yet without sin. How can you understand the pain of the empty nest? And as I sat there, God revealed to me this question. What was it like for you, Heavenly Father God, on Christmas Eve? Christmas Eve is wonderful for us. The baby in the manger, the pageants, the caroling, the gifts, the family. But what was it like for God? Here he was sending his only son with whom he had spent eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis it says, we created the earth. They had never been apart. They had always been tight for all of history. And yet on Christmas Eve, he chose to empty his nest, to limit his relationship in a way with his only son, to send him to be born in a stable, to grow up, to be persecuted, to be disbelieved, to be tormented, and finally to be crucified on the cross all because he loved you and me. Here I was sending my girls off to marry to something really good, and I was sad. Here was God on Christmas Eve sending his son to an unpleasant life simply because he loves you and me. I had never counted the cost of Christmas Eve for my Heavenly Father. I had never appreciated my Heavenly Father in that way. And yes, oh yes, he understood to a depth that I couldn't even perceive the sadness of the empty nest. So I want to encourage you, whatever emotion or struggle you are going through, Take it to the cross 
and ask Jesus, where in your life did you have a similar emotion? I love the last part of, verse, of chapter 4. It says, let us then, because of this high priest we have who's walked on earth as God-made man, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because he understands, we can approach his throne of grace with confidence. Confidence, ladies. And we will find help in our time of need. So two insights to leave you with for this season. God is bigger than your issue, whatever it is. And secondly, he alone really understands. And out of that depth of understanding comes comfort, supernatural comfort and supernatural peace. What God did for me that particular Christmas was to reveal to me something new. And so I want to encourage you today to ask God in the next couple of weeks to show you something new. So often we go into this season with sort of the same old, same old, the same traditions, the same expectations. And yet God is a God of new. He wants to do a new thing in each of our lives. So let me encourage you to begin today to pray, God, show me something new. And find a girlfriend who will also pray that. And then after Christmas, get together and go out on a date with your girlfriend and share the new thing God has done in your life in this season. Perhaps for some of you, it will be a new confidence. Perhaps it will be a new certainty. Perhaps even there may be some of you who are not really sure about your relationship with God. You sort of think you believe, you hope you believe, but you don't have absolute certainty. Perhaps your life was similar to mine. I grew up like probably most of you, many of you anyway, in the Episcopal Church my whole life. My parents were on vestries. I can't remember a time when I didn't believe. But, you know, church was, in all honesty, a bit boring. I remember I loved it when it was Communion Sunday because you could kneel and I would fall asleep as a teenager. Uh, I always thought that being a Christian really meant being good. And I had the theology that if I was a little more good than bad, one day I would get to go to heaven. So I tried really hard to be good, just a little bit more good than naughty. <laughs> and it wasn't until I was, after my sophomore year in college, I had an opportunity to travel to Europe with some girlfriends, and we met some really cute guys on this trip. And one of them said to me, Susan, are you a Christian? And I thought, what a question. I mean, that's really strange. And he was cute, and I thought... This is really odd, somebody who's cute that's asking me a question like that. And no, it wasn't my husband. He's cuter. But um, <laughs> I was intrigued, and I said to him, well, I think I am. I, I hope I am. I've always believed. And he said a very interesting thing. He said, Susan, God doesn't want you to think or hope. He wants you to know with absolute certainty. And he shared with me that God loved me and had a plan for my life. But because of my own sin, I was separated from God. 
And no amount of trying to be a good kid could fix that. Only Jesus' dying on the cross for my sins would enable me to have a personal relationship with him. Now, this wasn't particularly new to me given my upbringing. But what was new to me was what he said next. He said, Susan, it's not enough to know this or even believe it. But each of us, in our own way, must come to the place where we personally ask Christ to come into our life. And he shared with me a verse from the book of Revelation. It's chapter 3, verse 20. And it's a picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And it says, Behold or look, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone opens that door, I will come into him and fellowship with him or her and he with me. And my friend said, Susan, have you ever personally asked Jesus to come into your heart? And for me, I realized that I had not. For me, what I realized was that I had been living on an inherited faith, the faith of my family, the faith of my culture, and it was not yet a personal faith. And ladies, the reality is that God has no grandchildren. God only has children. And each of us and each of our children and each of our grandchildren will have to come to the place where we decide if we want to have Christ in our life or not. So my friend said, Susan, would you like to pray and ask Christ to come into your life? And I said, oh, well, this is a little weird. I'm an Episcopalian. We don't do that. <laughs> um, but I knew that I wanted to. And I said, well, how about you pray? And then I'll sort of pray silently along. And so that's what we did. And he prayed a prayer on my behalf, and I prayed it silently in my heart. Now, for me, it wasn't an emotional experience. It is for many people. But the beauty of our God is that he meets us each in our own individuality in a way that he knows he can get through. For me, it was moving from an inherited faith to a personal faith. And learning and believing and understanding for the first time that at that moment I could know that one day I would be in heaven with him simply because I was forgiven. I could not try to be good to get there. No one has been except Jesus himself who lived on earth as a God without sin. I realized that he would forgive my sins, all of them, and continue to forgive me as I confessed my sins. And I realized that he would fill me with his Holy Spirit. Again, in Ephesians 1, it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But it was a turning point in my life, and I began to have a hunger to grow, a hunger to know God in a way that I had never known him before. I got the dusty old King James Bible off of the shelf and got a new one, a new modern translation, and began to meet with some other young gals at college and began to grow in my faith. I share this with you because perhaps there's some of you for whom this is a new concept, the concept of certainty. One thing we can know with absolute certainty is Emmanuel. I am with you. And once we ask Christ to come into our life, he has promised that he will never, ever leave us. In Hebrews 13, 5, it says, I will never leave you, nor will I ever 
forsake you. We can have the assurance of certainty. So in this season of Emmanuel, I hope you will know his presence, the presence of the Lord that says, I understand, I am bigger than your biggest issue, and I will never, ever leave you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son on that cold night to be born in a manger in order that we might be forgiven of our sins, in order that we might know you and enjoy you forever. Please teach each of us something new this season. And as we remain in an attitude of prayer with our eyes closed, I'm going to pray a prayer similar to the one that I prayed with my friend when I first asked Christ to come into my life. And if you're not absolutely certain that you have ever done this, I would like to invite you to follow along silently in the privacy of your own heart and ask Christ into your life, simply by using my words. Dear Jesus, I need you. I open the door to my heart and ask you to come in. Thank you for forgiving all of my sins. Even that one I can barely mention, you have washed it clean. Thank you that you have promised that you will never leave me. Thank you that at this very moment, I can be assured that one day I'll be in heaven with you. Father, we are so grateful for this complete assurance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Um.